Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates, and this is Alan Ginsberg. Long since the years, letters, songs, mantras, eyes, apartments, bellies, kissed, and gray bridges walked across in mist. Now your brother's welfare's paid by state. Now Lafcadio's home with mama. Now you lie in New York beds with big poetic girls and go picket on the streets. I clang my finger cymbals in Havana. I lie with teenage boys afraid of the red police. I jack off in Cuban modern bathrooms. I ascend over the blue ocean in a jet plane. The mist hides the black synagogue. I will look for the golem. I will hide under the clock near my hotel. It's intermission for tales of Hoffman. My nostalgia for 19th century rides through my heart like the music of the Moldau. I'm still alone with long black beard and shining eyes, walking through night's dark, smoky tram car streets, slowly past royal muscular statues on Karlov the Stone Bridge, over the river again today in Bruegel's wintry city. The snow is white on all the rooftops of Prague. Salute, beloved comrade. I'll send you my tears from Moscow. That was message two from a reading Allen Ginsberg gave in London all those years ago in 1965. Ginsberg was one of the 20th century's most influential American poets and the founding father, high priest even, of the beat movement. And he became somewhat of a countercultural guru, possibly best known for his revolutionary poem, Howl. I saw the best minds of my generation destroyed by madness, starving hysterical naked, dragging themselves through the Negro streets at dawn, looking for an angry fix. Angel-headed hipsters burning for the ancient heavenly connection to the starry dynamo in the machinery of night. Now who better to talk about Ginsberg than his friend and biographer Barry Miles, known to his friends as Miles, the man who made that recording back in 1965 and the others will hear today courtesy of the British Library Sound Archive in the Ginsberg estate. Miles is the author of over 70 books including biographies of Paul McCartney, Frank Zappa, John Lennon, William Burroughs, Jack Kerouac, Bukowski and Allen Ginsberg, in addition to books on the Beatles, Pink Floyd and The Clash, as well as a definitive history of London's counterculture, London Calling, an epic work. In the 1960s, Miles worked at Better Books, where, in 65, Ginsberg gave a reading that led to the International Poetry Incarnation, a seminal event co-organised by Miles, and following that uh, he established the Indica Gallery, where John Lennon met Yoko Ono and the Indica Bookshop. He brought McCartney into contact with people who wanted to start International Times, which McCartney helped fund. And I also heard that he was the first person to give McCartney a hash brownie. With John Hopkins and Dave Housen, he organised the 14-hour technical dream, which we've talked about before on this show. A concert on, in 1967 at Alexandra Palace to raise funds for International Times with poets, artists, musicians, Pink Floyd, Yoko Ono, Arthur Brown, Soft Machine, Tomorrow, The Pretty Things and all sorts of other malarkey. Miles' books of memoirs of his time in the counterculture in the 60s and in the 70s and the upcoming in the 80s record his extraordinary adventures. In 1969, he moved with Sue, his then wife, to rural New York State, where he lived with Ginsburg on the Beat Farm. And that's what we're going to talk about today. That and some of this crazy times he spent subsequently at the Chelsea Hotel in New York. We also get into all sorts of other countercultural things. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, poetry, pigs, Allen Ginsberg's beard, Buddhism, booze and the beats. Welcome, Miles. Hi there. Listen, good to see you again. And we're going to dive deep into some of your adventures in the counterculture. <laughs> then, <laughs> um, now, it's going to be difficult to squeeze it all into an hour, obviously. So right. I'm not even going to try. As you know, I've been reading and loving your book in the 70s. Because mm -hmm. I thought we would talk about your crazy life and times with Ginsberg 
on mm. the farm. But before that, just a quick summary for uh, a listener. So Miles, um, through the 60s, has come from is it Cheltenham or Sirencester? Um, born in Cheltenham, grew up in Sirencester, went to art college in Cheltenham. Right, and then you came to London. You'd already been corresponding with William Burroughs and various other people. Yeah. You came to London and you sort of plunged pretty quickly into the heart of countercultural London. Throughout the 60s, Indica Bookshop, Poetry Happenings, writing for Oz, for IT, for the Underground Press. You've been basically fully immersed in that stuff. It got to sort of 1970. Yeah. And you were sort of like... You were kind of worn out, Well, it wasn't, wasn't just me. I think everybody I knew had reached... Uh, yeah, they were just totally exhausted. So many late nights, you know, too many drugs, um, all kinds of unspecified diseases. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, so it was a time when people were, were retiring to communes in Wales and mm. uh, were going back to Australia or wherever it is they came from and mm. sort of reassessing their lives. And, but also um, you've been working like a mad thing as well, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, the last year was crazy. I mean, I was also the um, label manager for Zapple, right. the, uh, the Beatles experimental um, sort of spoken word label, basically. Although it was going to have other kind of experimental stuff in it. So I've been making records as well as running the bookshop and writing for International Times. So um, it was I was just absolutely wiped out really and then um, in, in the end the bookshop in, just closed um, right you were saying earlier and I, I heard this rumour it may not be true but Indica one of the reasons Indica the countercultural bookshop had to close was because the people kept nicking stuff and because absolutely. you were hippies you you wouldn't uh, you declined to report them to the police no, so they, after the stop they, got stolen they knew that we would not obviously call the cops um, because I mean we had had the cops in the shop before because they came to raid us once <laughs> took, took away a load of books um, so no the last thing I'm going to do. So they, yes, I mean, they just ripped us off, and right. so it closed. It was, it's a shame because um, obviously it was it was the only place you could get certain things, particularly American magazines, mm. little experimental magazines and stuff like that. And also, we did have a, a clientele that was um, a bit exceptional. I mean, there was one time when I was entertaining the editor of uh, the Village Voice and uh, and the publisher of the Voice, and they were, who were visiting London, and right in the middle of it, this huge Swedish guy dressed in handmade sort of leather and, and, and you know, <laughs> hand-knitted stuff with huge long hair all matted literally leapt through the window smashing it, there's glass everywhere <laughs> grabbed a big armful of books and, and yelled, you know, books should be free <laughs> and he went charging off down the street <laughs> handing out these books to startled passers-by you know, and um, I mean, these guys from New York they said, my God, you know, all my years in New York I've never seen anything like that <laughs> <laughs> and you were all too cool to go and run, run after him and stop him, were you? Well, I, I, you wouldn't want to stop him. He was right. completely out of it on something. I mm. mean, uh, and he was big, man. He was mm. a big Swedish guy. Mm. And, you know, he looked like a Viking. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so Indica was no more. Indica Gallery as well, sort of. That was well. The gallery had closed uh, earlier in '67, yeah. yeah. I guess. Yeah. Uh, maybe even late '66. Yeah. Uh, mm. The gallery only lasted for two years, whereas mm. the bookshop lasted for about seven. Mm. We closed on February 29th, 1970. Mm. Right. Uh, so and we started at the end of '65. So it was a good long run. Really. Yeah. And International Times began in its basement, mm. and Alex Trockey had a little office there for Sigma, and you know, it, was, it was very much a countercultural centre, really. Mm. And I was just so wiped out. And um, and Ginsburg, who was a friend of yours, become a friend of yeah. yours over the previous years. I think he, I think you said to me that he sort of recognised somehow that you were knackered, didn't? And that you, that you well, he did. He did. I mean, I I first knew him in 1965. He stayed with me in London. It was from my flat basically that the ideas of for the Albert Hall poetry reading came about and then it, a meeting at the bookshop and so on um, and then so every time he came to London he would stay with me uh, not always but most of the time um, right through to the end of his life and I, I later on particularly in the 70s and uh, early 80s I would often stay at his place if I was in New York for any length of time um, yeah, he became a very, very good friend. But mostly when I was living with him, you know, on the, on the farm and mm. then later on in Berkeley, mm. uh, because uh, we shared a, a floor of a hippie commune in Berkeley uh, <laughs> in 1971. Right. Uh, so that was kind of fun as well. We'll, we'll, probably, we'll probably get on to We'll get on to that. Yeah. So he recognised that you were sort of, you know, you needed basically to some R&R, &R, right? Some, you needed a break yeah. from all this stuff. Well, he'd set up this farm, it was called the, the Poetry Farm, and it was basically for poets, mainly mm. poets, to um, yeah, dry out, really. Mm. It was Ray Bremser lived there, who was an old Beat Generation poet from the 50s, 
um, who'd been a junkie at one point and was really not in, you know, very frail. Basically, his, his wife looked after him and did all the cooking and everything. She always did his share of everything. Um, Gregory Corso was there for some time, and that was difficult mm. because Gregory was in a, a bad shape, and he, was, he, he wasn't on, on heroin, but he'd been on it for many years, and he was desperate to, to get out of it, you know, on booze He was desperate to, get o- desperate to get out of his head or desperate just, to get d- off the booze? No, he was desperate to, to just get as high as possible, right. you know, by whatever means. I mean, I don't know why he stayed there, really, because I mean, he was so <laughs> irritable and so unpleasant. And, and Alan even was saying, you know, who's the most accommodating of people, uh, he said, I don't think there's any friendship left, Gregory. You know, like, you've just used it all up. I was quite surprised because I, I, you know, I associate Gregory Corso, you know, one of the original beat poets mm, and, and, been, and been sort of friends with Ginsburg for what time had he and, oh, and so, so since about 1953 yeah. I didn't realise that he was he was so out of it and mm. it had gone so, so bad you were saying earlier that um, it was Burroughs that introduced him to heroin right well they were both living in uh, in the Beat Hotel in Paris mm. and um, I, I mean Bill was certainly on heroin at the time and they were hanging out together a lot but Bill was always quite um open about the fact that it's very very bad for you and mm. uh, unless you have enough money it's uh, you know it'll it'll fuck you up really you know completely I mean, you'll be, you know be robbing people and all the rest of it um on the other hand bill liked company uh, when mm. he was taking his drugs and uh, so yeah sure. got strung out you know? misery loves company as they say when you um <laughs> so your friends and he's also recognized both your talents as a sort of chronicler writer and that you sort of need some rest. So he mm. invites you to come to the States with the purpose of basically well, he, archiving his yes, work. Yes, because I'd made an album with him in, in, in the year before, in 1969, mm. of, of him singing William Blake that came out on MGM Records. And uh, he'd enjoyed that experience, being in the studio. Um, you know, we had some good jazz musicians on there. And um, even Alvin Jones, in fact, on, on played drums on one track. And... Um, and so he, yeah, he knew that I knew enough about recording studios and tapes and all that to uh, to do a good job. So he invited me to uh, catalogue his tape archive. Mm-hmm. And he'd over the years, he'd collected an enormous number of reel-to-reel tapes of his readings. Um, and sometimes they were taken off air. Um, a lot of them were in terrible fidelity. It couldn't mm-hmm. really be fixed. But, um, yeah, so, so we had hundreds of them. And... Um, and the idea was to select the best reading of each of his published poems. And almost all of them had been read aloud. There were about eight or ten that hadn't. And um, sometimes there were up to 25, 30 versions of them. So it was, well, it was so a the, lot of work. Yeah, know. so the idea was is that you get come to the farm, <laughs> to get, you get your head together. And then, of course, with Sue, your wife at the time, you went there yeah, together. And yeah. You could do that archiving whilst you're there. Well, well, they, well, there was one problem, of course. I mean, uh, I arrived on the farm and Alan had forgotten to tell me that there was no electricity. <laughs> <laughs> there I was, carrying, so tube, tape carrying my Revox A77, but there was no way of playing anything. He hadn't, thought, he hadn't thought that through. He hadn't thought that through. So the first thing we had to do was send away to um, uh, the Whole Earth Catalogue, one of those addresses on the Whole Earth Catalogue, and get a kit to build um, a uh, ACDC um, generator. And um, and then we built a windmill. I mean, I say we. I did very little of that. Your hard work. Uh, Gordon Ball, who uh, who ran the farm, <laughs> did most of the heavy slog. Okay. And and right. Peter Olovsky, who was a big muscular guy. Right. So and, oh, and Olovsky. So Olovsky, another beat poet. Another yeah. another going back to the early days, right as well. So he was there too. And his catatonic brother was there. We, they took him out of the mental hospital, and, and Julius was there as well. Right, and and Olovsky and Ginsburg, uh, this sort of on-off relationship, right? Well, <coughs> Peter was living there with his girlfriend, um, Denise, Denise Mercedes, right. and um, Alan used to hang out with them a little bit, but basically, I, I don't think there was much in the way of sex anymore. Um, mm. So, um, and and basically, Alan, although he pretended to like. Uh, <laughs> Denise, he really, you know, would have been much happier if she was not there. Right. <laughs> it's all very accommodating and quite free and easy. You know, they, they had a relationship, but they were. He was Alan was okay with his that that Peter was there with his girlfriend now, mm. and everybody's get kind of getting on at least on the surface, right? And, mm, mm. and it was quite liberated times, wasn't it? I mean, not just in terms of like sexual liberation, but in terms of you know emotional relationships, quite mature. Yeah, way, wasn't it? well, yes, it was at that point, but I think mm. in the end, that's probably what war. Peter down. I mean, okay. uh, but you see, Peter came from a very dysfunctional family. Every single member of his family, including his mother, uh, was in a mental hospital at one point. Um, and he had, uh, there was the twins, uh, Lafcadio and Maria, and 
and his older brother um, Julius, and he, uh, and they'd all been spent time in in hospital. Peter was the was the sort of sanest of them. Poor Julius, I mean, you had to tell him to do everything. You know, you'd just say, have some breakfast, Julie, and he'd have breakfast. And of course, everybody who came down said, have your breakfast. So he'd have like three breakfasts. <laughs> or he'd just do what he was told. <laughs> he always, he just did what he was told. He didn't say anything. He never said a word. Never said a word? No, no. Right. I mean, you could give him pills which were so powerful, you could almost see smoke coming out of his ears, you know. And then he would, he would revert back to when he was last sort of more or less sane, which was back in the 50s sometime. And he would sing sort of old Guy Mitchell records and stuff. <laughs> but, and... and what I really liked doing with him was playing cards because you never knew what the rules were. And he'd be dealing them out and it would all be very complicated. And in the end, he, just as you thought, well, maybe, you know, something's, you know, he would just fold them all up and say, yeah, I won. <laughs> <laughs> well, he didn't say I won. He just gave them. Yeah, he, just, know, he didn't say anything. <laughs> cheered, stood up and cheered. Yeah, and then he would indicate mm. whether I would like another game or not. Well, why not? Why not? Right, exactly. yeah, of course. Yeah. Sounds great. So I was going to say earlier, um, when you said you built the windmill, um, you were more of a kind of academic type. I, I didn't really, I didn't see you in a pair of dungarees and uh, no. up on the hill wielding I mean, a, was wielding a large sort of hammer. Crushed, crushed velvet loon pants, kind of <laughs> <laughs> left over from the sixties. <laughs> but a, a, windmill, a windmill got built, which provided some sort of uh, yeah, intermittent because power they, they, supply, they'd already <clears throat> dug a well, so they had a water supply that, that they cleverly invented. And um, because there was the shaft going down to the spring, uh, we built the windmill above the shaft and, um, and then put the batteries, car batteries, uh, down below the frost line, um, right deep down in the shaft. So, and then run, run power cables up to the house. Right, so the, the wind would, pa- when, it, when the wind blew, it would, it would charge up the batteries. Yeah, so right. there were about eight, I think, maybe car mm. batteries there. And it was a bit intermittent, was it? Because, I mean, you, you... Yeah, we only really had about three hours power a day so, so you were trying to you were trying to archive and edit i'm assuming <laughs> as well edit with these tape mm. machines and mm. cut and mm. splice and yeah find the best bits and put it all together yeah uh, with on a few hours a day and mm. then there were other people there of course who i remember uh, one of alan's on-off girlfriends showed up and of course she would insist on they, she had a, brought a record player with her so when we weren't in She'd use up all the all power, the power just playing, playing records. Right. <laughs> Did you manage to keep your temper? No. <laughs> <laughs> she was totally selfish. She never thought about anybody else at all. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, it, it's a combination of the sort of bucolic and, you know, this wonderful place upstate, right, and, you know, a beautiful farm. Mm. Oh, it and was. It was surrounded by state woods. And uh, and it was about uh, ninety acres, I think. It was a cow and a horse, and um, and then one one day we got a pig. Um, We went to get some spare parts for one of the cars. All the cars were like nineteen fifties sort of Oldsmobiles and stuff. I mean, absolutely astonishing that they were still going at all. But Peter Olowski and Denise and I went to buy some to buy a new fender or a new exhaust or something Um, to this automobile graveyard. Basically, it was just like fields of these old wrecks. But also, in the, and running around there, were, were chickens and pigs. And P- Peter, of course, decided to buy a pig. <laughs> so this guy just stuck, stuck it in a sack. It was just a big, little piglet. And, was, um, was this for the purpose of eating it or for as a pet? No, as a pet. Hmm. As a pet. It, no, it was a vegetarian farm. Ah, strictly vegetarian. Okay. Yeah. And um, I remember Alan's face when we got home. <laughs> we were getting the stuff out of the car. And Peter just opens the top of it. <laughs> of the sack and this pig shot in the air I mean it must have covered about eight feet before it landed you know and, and Alan just just held his ha- head in, in his hands and sort of moaned you know like oh no you know, like, so. I've got to say he comes across um, as an extremely lovely person Ginsburg certainly in your account anyway because mm. um, you know he too has had this kind of crazy 60s he's become a celebrity a guru wasn't he an accounts mm, cultural mm. guru he's, you know it's a time well, he when he wanted to be yes he wanted to be, be yes. Again. But he, he's been be. a poet since the Beat era. He, Elder statesman of the sort of of the Beat generation, and um, you know he's he's got into mysticism and all that stuff. And he's you know he's, mm. this is a time when you know poetry readings were like rock concerts, weren't yeah, they? So, yeah. You know, and he's obviously made quite a bit of money, and he's got his place in uh, yeah. the in. He never, in, he never in made any money. He gave. Ah, um, okay. He made a point of um, putting all his money into a charitable trust, right. the Committee on Poetry, right. and. On the strength of that, he kept people like Corso, uh, Herbert Hunky, um, 
Harry Smith and, and all kinds of other people going and anyone who was in trouble you know he would write a check also, um, when International Times was busted for instance he wrote us a check for $500 or something right. I mean so he made sure that he had no money left um, you know each year his own his own living costs were absolutely minimal really he lived in a, a really dangerous part of the Lower East Side yeah. he, he dressed entirely from thrift shops yeah. uh, he was about the most unmaterialistic non-materialist he was really truly living it wasn't he because obviously he was generating quite a lot of money from his, oh, yeah. from his, from his appearances was. and his writings and uh, etc and then so he puts it into the trust the trust owns the farm and the farm mm. is is this kind of poetry farm that's the mm. idea isn't it but also he basically offers it as a as a kind of countercultural version of priory or something isn't oh, it yeah. where <laughs> this kind of countercultural mm. friends can come to get off drugs and dry out he was hoping that was going to go there but, right, uh, but he didn't, of course. And, uh, to dry out. To dry out, yeah. Mm. But of course, he dried. Well, he just died an alcoholic's death in 1969. Mm. Mm. So I never met Kerouac. The only one mm. I didn't meet. Right. Yeah. Presumably, he was. He could see that drugs and booze were killing his friends' creativity, and in fact, them. Right. Mm. Was that why he? did this thing of actually setting up this place where they could come and he was and he tried to impose sort of quite strict rules didn't he oh yeah there was no alcohol and right. no drugs at all and mm. not even pot and mm. yet um, I mean he certainly didn't disapprove of pot I mm. mean he was a founder member of Limar in a legalized marijuana movement in New York there's a lot of wonderful pictures of him on a demonstration in the late 60s carrying so deep snow there's hardly anyone around at all and he's marching along with this great big sign saying pot is fun <laughs> 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 Absolute classic. I <laughs> well, so he didn't have any moral. It was no. It wasn't a moral objection. It was just that he could see that it wasn't doing. Well, yeah, people good, right? So well, it's like so how you know, yeah. it's all the best minds of my generation destroyed. Right. Blah, 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 blah. I mean, uh, and it's true. Right. I mean, an awful lot of his friends, you know, really didn't survive or or mm. really fucked themselves up so badly mentally that they were they didn't produce any work anymore. Right. You know, anything of any interest. Right. Um, so, yeah, so he wanted Kerouac to be there, and he, and he certainly wanted Gregory to dry out. Mm. And any other, I mean, lots and lots of poets came and stayed. I mean, uh, you name them, they were there. You know, mm. everybody from Robert Creeley to, mm. um, well, Hunky came up, I remember he was there. Um, I mean... <laughs> who was he then? I don't Herbert, Herbert Hunky was the was a thief who um, was was so bad that uh, even the police on Times Square used to hate him and then throw him <laughs> off the square from time to time. For and prostitution? He, or, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was a male hustler, but mo mm. mainly he was just uh, just a thief. He, he would, you know, you couldn't, you know, no matter how down and out you were, you know, he would still rob you. <laughs> he was just absolutely right. no scruples or no morality at all. Um, and of course on the farm, I mean, uh, I remember very shortly after I, um, he got there, uh, I found him in my room and he said, I got lost. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that big a farm, I'll tell you. <laughs> so he, he, he's the one who named the beats. Right. I mean, uh, okay. The, the, okay. The, the actual term beat generation ah. came from him. And so he was regarded as, was he also a poet then, or was he just regarded as no, a big character was, in some way? No, he was one of those kind of characters. Mm. I mean, these were all white middle class guys, after all, and uh, mm. they met a genuine um, down and out. Except he wasn't, of course, he came from a middle class family in Chicago. But um, uh, his father threw him out when he found him dressed in women's clothes or something, and uh, he became a male hustler. And, um, and uh, yeah, he survived. In the end, Alan kept trying to persuade him to write about some of his friends and, and he wrote quite serviceable prose and, and the stories mm. were all so great you know so he's there's three or four books of his out right uh, okay he's, he's long dead right. i'm afraid yeah but uh, so i suppose he was like a beat character in some way like yeah. authentic low life you know kerouac's books are full of those sort of people aren't yeah they? Kind well, of Harrow, he, uh, he's in there he's mm. in on the road i think okay. certainly in one of the maybe two alan ginsburg set up this farm which is also kind of run as a commune even though i think you, you say in the book that it was a commune but it was kind of his place and he sort of set down the rules right? well yeah he set down the rules and he also right. paid for it it cost right. him a lot of money I right think, right you know, because right. Uh, it was it was it was producing stuff, mm. but it wasn't. Uh, there were so many extravagances. I mean, like the horse, for instance. I mean, you know, nobody ever rode it, and uh, <laughs> nobody ever groomed it. So there were great tufts of hair floating around everywhere, mm. and um, you know, and people would love to go and, and stroke its nose and chat to it. But mm. I mean, I, 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 I don't think Alan ever got on it. Or maybe <laughs> Peter did occasionally. Uh, there was um, this pig which grew to be, you know, 450 pounds in the end, and absolutely enormous, and still tried to sleep on their bed because it lived in the room with them. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, <laughs> there was a whole bunch of chickens which periodically got eaten, of course, by, you know, right. by foxes and stuff. Mm. Um, 
I don't think we had. I think yes, they did have a goat. I think we we had our own milk. Mm. Yeah, we had some yeah. goat's milk, yeah. and Bessie the cow, of course, yeah. and she was milked every day, and so it was self-sufficient and that. Peter grew acres of, of soybeans and things like that, and uh, so so much yeah. of that was. Since we were vegetarian, I mean, um, I yeah. guess most of the food actually was okay. Yeah, um, you said. I think you said, didn't you, that when he was coming off um, junk, he had all this energy, and he, he sort of poured it into kind of farming and cultivating vegetables and yeah, stuff and then yeah. there's this rather beautiful passage when you talk about getting ready for winter because obviously it was it was hot in summer wasn't it mm, was very the winter was super yeah. cold and then mm. there's this you spent this whole time towards the end don't you where you're all pickling vegetables and yep yeah preparing for the so putting the winter stores aside i mean it all does sound quite almost quite 19th yeah. century yeah. but uh, meanwhile ginsburg is apart from receiving people and you know just running the place or whatever he's writing like he's he ferocious writer isn't he? he's writing mm -hmm. poems he's writing he's campaigning the whole time isn't endlessly he? So, yeah, right, yeah i mean he was a he was a busy guy because the vietnam war was 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 going you know yeah. and um he, he was writing endless things to for the new york times i mean in the op-ed column and mm. uh and just inside the front door, I mean, when you came in, you came straight into the kitchen, basically. That's mm. where the phone was. And there was a child's chair there, just this tiny little chair. And Alan sat on that virtually every morning. You know, why he never didn't get a proper chair. I mean, there's another chair just, just across the room he could have used. But um, <laughs> and he sat there like furiously dialing and talking to people, like you know. And he went, once got straight through to Kissinger at one point. <laughs> really? Know? Yeah, and he said, right. "It's Alan Ginsberg, the poet." And Kissinger said, "I know." Because <laughs> 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 Kissinger was one of the architects of the Vietnam War. Right? He was. Yeah, he right. was. So he was, he was, he was Secretary kind of, like, of State. He, he was, was responsible for invading Cambodia and all right. the rest of it. So he's kind of countercultural enemy and, in um, some respects. But right. the fact that Alan was famous enough to even mm. be able to get through. Well, I mean, I can't imagine how many layers separate the average person from Henry Kissinger. Well, you've been tasked with this sort of rather sort of Sisyphean job of, of archiving mm. Ginsburg's mm. vast collection of tapes and stuff, whilst operating on the sort of a couple of hours of electricity a day, which other people keep stealing to play yep. Jimi Hendrix records and stuff. That's like. it. Um, so how are you getting on with it? I mean, um, what was your day like then? There was no work schedule, really. I mean, the schedule depended on how much electricity there was. And, mm. uh, so I did other things. I, I was one of the main cooks because uh, the food they cooked there was awful. And, <laughs> and um, Sue, my, my wife, when she was first there, um, obviously took over the cooking because she was a professional chef back right. in London. And um, But then when she... Right, so the food, there's presumably the standard of food when you guys arrived... Increased well, it a, massively, didn't yes, it? Right, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah. the, the basic yeah. stuff was great. I mean, the mm. beautiful tomatoes and things mm. like that. But um, uh, but then murdered by by a bunch of out of it hippies, really. <laughs> you know, beatniks actually. They're mm. all beatniks. They weren't any mm. not much in the way of hippie there. Um, a, f a friend of mine worked for Knopf in New York, and um, I asked her to send me um, the uh, the art of French cooking cooking in two volumes by <laughs> Julia Child <laughs> and so I cooked my way through all the vegetarian uh, things there and that's how I learned to cook and I'm a bit of a foodie even now. Right I know that but I mean uh, so and one of the things I suppose which we which is slightly missing from that account is is that you and Sue who'd been together all the way through the 60s pretty mm. much hadn't you you mm. come to Ginsburg's farm and you split up didn't you whilst yep. you were there yeah so that must have been a very difficult one for you as well at the time well right? it was yeah. it was um on the other hand it's it we got together when we were both teenagers mm. basically we grew up together mm. you know as you do you know if you're we, we had there was a lot of shared experience mm. and um but if you get together with somebody when you're only, what was she? She was must have been 17, I guess, mm. and I was 18. Mm. You know, it's it's very young for mm. a, for a lifelong relationship. And you did all these and, things together. And also, it was the 60s. Don't forget. Yeah, I mean, right. so, so it was a slightly open marriage. It wasn't mm. not mm. not that much really, not compared mm. to many other people. But uh, mm. um, you know, we we both had other other little scenes. And, mm. But uh, but then on the farm, you know, the biggest the big problems came out, whatever they mm. were, and. Um, and she ran off with uh, the, one of the engineers at the Apostolic Recording Studios in New York. <laughs> right. <laughs> but she and I remained friends throughout, right. throughout yeah. her life. She's dead yeah. now, sadly. Yeah. So you guys split up, and then you also get together with Anne, who became mm. your wife later, all, mm. all during this time at the farm, right? On so the farm, yeah. I was reading a lot, and there was a, a very big library there. Alan right. had a lot of books there. Mm. So that was I read a, a tremendous amount mm. there. And... Um, 
and talked. You see, I mean, mm. the, the thing about all these old beats is that they they were they were great raconteurs. Mm. And there was this the, the guy who ran the farm, the farm manager, Gordon Ball, um, mm. was also a sort of experimental filmmaker, and he'd worked with Jonas Mikas and mm. uh, Barbara Rubin and all those people at uh, the New York Film Co-op. And uh, so he he was very au fait with a lot of the avant-garde stuff, and uh, and um, so I. I became very good friends with him, and the only one that was really hard to deal with was Greg. Quite Ryan. aggressive, right? And he was aggressive. Yeah, yeah. wanted I mean, to kill well, Alan at one point, didn't he? Well, he was always saying how he was going to kill Alan. Yes, I mean that's mm. one of the reasons Alan just got to dislike him in the end. Mm. But he also, I mean, he would—he was trying to pressure Gordon into buying, you know, buying b beer for him and stuff like that, and he knew that he wouldn't. And but in the end, you know, he, he, I was there once when he slugged poor old Gordon, you know, just whacked him in the eye and yeah. knocked him across the room. And I, I tried to stop it, the fight, and I got thrown across <laughs> the room. Because <laughs> Fortunately, my glasses didn't get broken. <laughs> so um, it did seem to... So, yeah, so it was a bit nasty sometimes. Yeah, it seems to ricochet from, you know, these yeah. kind of quite violent, difficult times with difficult characters sort of strung out on, you know, coming down. Or Alan seems to have had a kind of quite a long fuse. He seemed to be very patient with these people because he had a lot yeah. of loyalty to them, didn't he, going back down mm, the years mm. and sort of took a lot of shit. Oh, he did, he? he did, he did. You know, his friend, as far as he was concerned, all his friends were geniuses, and mm. uh, you know, he, he almost single-handedly invented the Beat Generation. After mm. all, I mean, because they, they, they their work was really quite disparate, and they mm. weren't even a generation. I mean, you know, Burroughs was born in 1914, after all, mm. and um, Alan was 26, and I think uh, uh, Gregory was even younger. So, mm. I mean, they, they were hardly a generation. Um, Alan gets invited to do various poetry readings in the area, mm -hmm. and there's this one particular event, isn't there, where you've got, and I think you've got a new recording machine as well, so you decide that you're going to go and record him live. Mm -hmm. I like this um, story when you went to this Catholic school, and um, <laughs> he gives this, he reads this poem, it's quite rude. Well, it, it's, a, it's a poem called Please Master. Yeah, I right. do remember it. And it's classic of Alan that he would... This is not something that was normally in his repertoire. <laughs> but uh, he, he read a couple of normal ones to the... To the it, it was at a school, so it was, mm. yeah, so all these schoolgirls sitting there with a nun sitting at the end of each row. And um, and then he launches into Please Master, which is like, you know, Please Master, fuck me in the arse and do this. And, I mean, really uh, hardcore stuff. <laughs> what got me is that afterwards the teacher came up to him and didn't say anything about the fact that he said, Please Master, fuck me in the arse, but had objected to the fact that he'd mentioned the Sacred Heart. Yes, right. yes I couldn't believe it. Because it was a liberal right. you know, Catholic sure. college, you sure. know, but, uh, yeah. but not that liberal. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, so in a way, all sounds quite mad and quite lovely at times and quite crazy at times and then you got there did you you managed to actually complete the archiving did you yeah you know? no i did it, it took despite about the, i don't know how many months probably about only three months when i think been maybe four four mm. was probably more like it mm. and um yeah we so we, we assembled a master tape and uh and then went to i forget now why we couldn't go until the next year but uh it, was, it wasn't until 71 we went to Berkeley right. because we did a deal, or Alan did a deal, with uh, Fantasy Records, who were doing very, very well at that point with Creedence Clearwater Revival right. and making a huge amount of money. And they'd built a big new studio complex. And, um, you know, they weren't renting it out to anybody else. So they, they, there was studio space almost all the time. So uh, we were going to do a 10-volume uh, album box set of, of Alan's poetry and uh, at a special discount and um so we went out there to basically to master it mm. you know because they had a, a neumann cutting lathe and all kinds of really good stuff um which, which they were very hard to find i mean there was only one in britain and apple records had that and um so you went out there to produce it well i, I basically produced mm. it i mean mm. in as much as i did i, I remixed everything mm. well i mean it, these were terrible tapes many mm. of them. some of them going mm. right back to the late 50s on mm. paper where there was some mm. on paper, paper i didn't tape, even know right. paper tape existed yeah. Yeah. i spent ages messing around with you know <laughs> and these are these are the days with cutting blocks and, sure. and razor blades of course you know we're not talking anything electronic <laughs> here <laughs> it's all very very physical um 
And so it was just me with headphones moving tapes backwards right. and forwards, backwards and forwards to get the... Because often, the, Alan also wanted the, any flubs to be taken out, you know, where he stumbled right. over a word okay. or somebody coughed and, or a dog barks or something. And it, sometimes we left it in, but uh, it, if, if it really interrupted the flow of the poems, I, I used to edit that out. So that was what I, I was doing mostly on the farm, really, was, was once we decided on a, on a good uh, copy, mm. I would then take the tapes back to New York well, let's have a listen to something. We heard Message 2 from a recording you made in 1965 uh, and was released on your and Hoppy's love label. This is another from the same session on the same album. It's Big Beat. The Olympics have descended into the red velvet basement theatres of Centrum. Long, long hair over those skeleton boys, thin black ties and pale, handsome cheeks and screams and screams when the applause rises to ecstasy and this new generation of buttocks and eyes and tender nipples clap thousand-handed in great ancient rhythm because the body moves again, the body dances again, the body sings again, the body screams newborn after war, infants cursed with cold jails and the secret deaths of the 50s now girls with new breasts and striplings with the soft golden hair of puberty. Screams, screams, screams 1,000 voices at once five minutes long, saluting the meat god of the 20th century that moves through the theater like the secret rhythm of the belly in orgasm. Kolki resurrected Christ Maitreya at last Grim Kronos weeps tired into the saxophone. The earth is saved. Next number, she's a woman on the red electric guitar. And Ganymede emerges, stumping his feet for joy on the stage and bows to the ground and weeping gives. Oh, the power of the god on his throne, surrounded by a battery of white drums with his right hand sceptered, beating constantly into the brass cymbal. So in Berkeley, you were living in a commune together as well, were you? But in, in Berkeley, by, by the time we got to Berkeley, um, he was a doctor, um, and, uh, and his wife, and then there was about six other people living there. Mm. And then we had a whole floor. And Alan fell in love with... Uh, a guy, one one of the coquettes, anyway. <laughs> um, so it was this bunch of guys who who did performance art and uh, and sang songs, and all in full drag, except they had beards, <laughs> <laughs> and which were all covered in sort of glitter dust. And Alan said, you know, that, that, that glitter dust, it gets everywhere. It's, 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 it's all over the bed. It gets up your ass, you know. It's like in other places, you know. So. Uh, <laughs> Um, hibiscus, his name was. That's right. right. Uh, and uh, so hibiscus would be around the place. Hibiscus, what a name! Yeah, right, a wonderful. Right. Name. It may yeah. not have been his real name. You never know. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So, so the coquettes were pretty good. They've mm. now become rather legendary, but at right. the time, no one really knew who the hell they were, really. And they were pretty outrageous, even for mm. Berkeley. Um, and then, it, and then Alan met up with the, the guy who became his guru, Chongyam uh, Trungpa. He was mm. a Tibetan. Um, he was here as a bit in Scotland, wasn't he, for a while? Sorry, he lived in Scotland for a long time. Yeah. He had a British passport, in fact. Yeah, yeah he started the Samyaling Monastery in Scotland. Yeah. And um, is that how Ginsburg fully got into Buddhism, then, Tibetan Buddhism? Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It wasn't yeah. until 71. Right. And I'd known Trungpa from London. Right. And so... Um, and then, and then Trungpa told him he should cut his beard off because he was scaring people. So... <laughs> So Alan shaved his beard off. He didn't look good without a beard. No, no, he, 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 and, that, uh, the beard look was good, wasn't it? It was quite yeah. strong, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, he, yes, he made yeah. him look like Karl Marx. And yeah, then the, yeah. as he got older and more distinguished, he, he shaved it into a, a nice shape and he looked just like uh, V.I. Lenin. <laughs> so he, was, he didn't ever get to the Trotsky phase. He had the hair for Trotsky. Um, <laughs> so just to go back a sec, so between, um, between the farm and Berkeley, you'd gone back to... Uh, New York and actually again this is a, it's a very vivid description because you get back compared with the bucolic nature of the farm because you mm. virtually as soon as you get back there with Anne you go in and stay in Alan's apartment in Alphabet City yep. and it all, yep. immediately get kind of mugged yeah I was just there was no lock on the front door of the building 
and mm. um, we were up on the second floor, I guess. And uh, I was just putting the key in the door of the apartment, and I'd, I'd, somebody just tapped me on the shoulder, and I looked, turned around and looked straight down the barrel of the gun. And then I saw that Anne was being held against the wall with a knife. And uh, these two guys just made take me into the apartment, and they tied us up, cut the phone wire off, and used the, f the phone line to tie us both up. I mean, in a way, I was pleased they tied Anne up because otherwise they might have raped her or something. Mm. And they kept saying, where's the money, where's the money? And I kept saying, would I be living here if I had... <laughs> and they understood that. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah. So, <laughs> anyway, they, they took all well, the tape recorders. Took your tape they, recorders. They, they took the tape. Yeah, well, fortunately, only one of them had a tape in it. Right. Um, so that, that went forever. But that was a, a year, a year 4,000. It was quite an expensive... Thing. Alan, Bob Dylan had given it to Alan, in fact. So Alan, Alan was quite upset to lose that. Sure. It's also a very expensive machine. Mm. Um, although very. Um, so that was quite a brutal um, reawakening, isn't it? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I was, I was really scared. They piled a lot of stuff up, and, but they only did the one thing, obviously. Mm. They carried out whatever they could. The TV that they took didn't work anyway. <laughs> um, you know, so. And there was money there, in fact. But there were also about 6,000 books, and then, you know, they would not have found it. <laughs> you stashed, you stashed the money between the pages. Well, the little the bit that I had. Mm. But yes, I mean, mm. we're talking about 100 bucks or something. Mm. You know, but, um, yeah. So, so I immediately it took ages to get loose, and then I ran and banged on the next door. And this poor Puerto Rican woman, she said, "I've been mugged seventeen times." You oh. know, she said, "Those boys, they only live around the corner on Avenue D, and, and it'll all have gone by now." You know, right? Um, They've uh, sold all the sold all the yeah, gear. Yeah, they're just junk. Uh, so, but that leads us really uh, to your. F I think your first sojourn in the Chelsea Hotel, or maybe your second. You'd, you'd actually no, I'd, I'd been there before. You'd been there before. In the, when I was making um, the, the the William Blake album with Alan, I lived there. In fact, when I, I I'd lived there twice before already. Mm. And of course, as soon as I got mugged, I mean, I was not going to stick around. I, I was <laughs> back in the Chelsea. So you and Alan went r rushed up to the Chelsea. Yeah, I got yeah. a cab and went. It's punctuated, isn't it? This time, late sixties through the seventies, with these st your stays in the Chelsea. Yeah, yeah, and. What was it like? I mean, it was a strange, strange place. I mean, it doesn't sound like any hotel. To me, know, it was, I think, in. the happiest times, or some of the happiest times I've ever had in my whole life were there. Mm. It was, and it was what they call a residential hotel, wasn't it? Originally? Yeah, I mean, they did do what they called transients. When I was there, I think you had to stay at least two nights. Um, mm. But it was it, mostly it was people with a lease, you know, who'd been there for years and years and years. And, um, so it was basically like having an apartment, but with a bit of room service, was it? Yeah. The yes. concierge, yeah. Yes, yes, the maids would come and change your linen and mm. stuff and clean the place. And uh, mm. they, they, there was still a, um, the El Quixote restaurant next door, bar and restaurant. You could still get to it from the lobby. And uh, a lot of people lived there. I mean, Virgil Thompson, the, the uh, composer who did two operas with Gertrude Stein, he lived there for about 30 years before he died. He died mm. there. Yeah. yeah, he was like a sort of Mr. Magoo kind of character, you know, he was a little, little round, everything was round about him, and, and he sort of bubbled and, you know, to, couldn't wait to tell you all the stories of all the famous people he knew. <laughs> he also said Ginsburg introduced you, didn't he? And didn't he negotiate yeah. your rent as well? Yes, he did. Well, he was paying, paying oh, he was paying it, because I was, well, yeah, I was doing the, the, the tape stuff still, right. yeah. And, uh, yes, I, I was doing a lot of the editing, actually, there, because mm. I didn't finish it during the summer. When I was over there to record um, spoken word stuff in the summer of 69, uh, um, Alan, I, I said I need to find a hotel. Um, to, and he said, I know just the place. <laughs> and I'd not heard of the, of, the, of the Chelsea at that time. So he took me over there. And um, I remember we walked into the lobby, which was covered floor to ceiling with art. And I recognised a lot of it. You know, there was a big Larry Rivers, and was, I mean, these are serious people, really mm. good stuff. Um, Donated to the hotel, or well, in, in lieu of rent. In lieu of rent, yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, uh, mm. Roscoe, in fact, had a studio there, but uh, it, it, there was no, there were no Roscoes on the wall. I think Stanley Bard, who owned the place, took that home. <laughs> <laughs> so I hope he did. Um, and uh, the first person we ran into was Arthur Miller. <laughs> so, oh, great. So Alan knew him, of course, because Alan knew everybody. And uh, Miller, in fact, was no longer living there. But um, when he broke up with Marlon Monroe, he, um, he moved in there. And he lived there for quite a few years. And he was just visiting for some reason. And uh, that was nice. I thought, this, this looks a good place. This is yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just for Arthur Miller. And so we then, you the know, lobby. he introduces me right. to Stanley Bart. There were a couple of 
different people behind reception. Mm. And then next to reception was this, the switchboard with Josie. And Josie really ran the building because <laughs> you could call down to Josie and say, is anyone having a party? And she <laughs> knew who you knew because she'd, plug, ah, she'd plugged everything, right. everybody in always, you know, because right. uh, in the old days, that's how it was with a switchboard. Right. You know, there was no direct dial, you know. Right. Um, so she would say, oh, well, now, Dr. Johnson, she's having a party this <laughs> evening, and I'm sure you'll be welcome. Because she knew that I knew Dr. Johnson, who was this wonderful uh, black woman who had taught literature at Columbia. And uh, and she had wonderful parties. I mean, it was it was really sort of the, the Harlem intellectuals coming down and meeting up with you know people like Mailer and everybody would always be there. So those kind of parties were great. So w- um, so Miles, you must have been in heaven, right? So so it was you, great. T- you turn over this place. Great. The first person you meet there's Arthur Miller. Then yeah. Ginsburg negotiates you a room, does he, with Stanley, yeah, the owner? Yeah, I think I forget how much it was now. I think it was three hundred and twenty a month. I think something like that mm. dollars. It was not cheap, but mm, um, right. You know, and you got you had like a little apartment. You yeah, know? well, well, just a, a yeah. big studio. You going to parties with Norma Mailer and? Well, all the, I mean, the people who lived there I mean, it was extraordinary. I mean, there was uh, Arthur C. Clarke was still there hmm. with his telescope, which uh, <laughs> it, you couldn't see any stars. But uh, as he pointed out, he said, "You, he said that the things you can see." <laughs> he said, uh, "It's better than anything you pay good money for in Times Square." You know, and he just was looking at people's apartments. You know, okay, watching right. everybody having sex. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, who else was there? Um, Len- uh, Leonard Cohen was living there mm. at the time, and he just had one album out. Mm. And um, he was one of the most generous people I've ever met, really, because uh, people from the Chelsea would all gather in El Quixote next door, the big bar next door. And um, you'd often have a table of about eight, ten people ordering drinks and stuff, and sort of trying to keep track of who owed what and everything. And um, almost inevitably, uh, Leonard would leave the the, the table early and then you'd find that he'd paid the whole lot pay the bill yeah mm. and he wasn't that rich he would only had one album out. I don't mm. think his first album made him that much money mm. um, and then there was Janis Joplin was living there and um Sadly, I'm, I'm not one of the many conquests she made, but uh, <laughs> I did a, I'm just occasionally, you know, close the bar with her. And the bar didn't close till four in the morning, mm. you know, so we... She would be, be there right to the end, I'm assuming. She, right? Yeah, we'd both mm. be sitting there at the bar, you know, like, mm. <laughs> not in great shape. You know, <laughs> so. the, the Project to Archive all his poems, ten mm. albums set and all that stuff. And then you went on, you know, you were good friends all the way through till... He died, weren't you? And yeah. he'd stay with you when he came here. I mean, I think you yeah. showed me a picture of, of him naked in your flat, actually. Was that because he was his, his preferred means of dress was naked, wasn't it? Well, the picture I showed you, that was his 39th birthday party, oh. I think. Yeah, The Beatles came, and mm. uh, he was naked. That was, uh, <laughs> that was in 65. Right, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and John Lennon and um, Cynthia and George Harrison and Patty came to the party and um, Alan was by then yes naked with his underpants on on top of his head and a do not disturb sign hanging around his dick (laughs) (laughs) is that the first time you met the Beatles and that was the first time I met the Beatles yeah they must have been impressed Um, well Lennon stayed around for a little bit and and, and, then well they both stayed around but Mm. the first thing they did was look around to make sure there were no photographers around of course you know because um, they're quite canny. Then, you know, they stayed for a drink and then went to leave. And I, I said to John, you know, sort of, um, why are you going so soon? And, and he says, you don't do that in front of the birds. <laughs> 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 and then, of course, a couple of years later, there he is, stark naked on the yeah, front of right, two virgins with Yoko, you know. <laughs> but you, you stayed kind of tight, didn't you, all yeah, the way yeah. through? And then, well, yeah. And no, because he did, yeah, when he stayed with me here, he would, um, you know, we would just hang out. and. Mm. There was certain, he loved Soho, for instance. Mm. Um, you know, we would go to the French pub and places mm. like that. And, mm. uh, and he and always that, loved it. He always thought it was great. Right. And as the 70s progressed, I mean, he got deep into Tibetan Buddhism, didn't he? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and that was a big thing for him for a while. And suppose he became an elder statesman, didn't he? Of sort of literary elder statesman. Yeah. Of some sort. Yeah. Because by then I was writing my biography of him, um, which took three and a half years right right an epic work so as well right yeah it was it was yeah. my first proper book mm. and um and so it took me longer than it would now let's mm. say it was also a bit of a hagiography let's face it um in what sense uh, well because i i um i suppose i was just too close to the subject mm. you know? to me uh, the ideal biography is one where you you don't, you don't know you them. don't pronounce yeah. on anything you, yeah. you let the reader decide yeah. you know good yeah. god this man's a monster you know, <laughs> or what a saint you know yeah. alan only wanted to change stuff about his guru i mean he never wanted to ah. there was no indication at all that i should 
you know. I mean, a lot of the stuff I write about, a lot of people will find quite shocking. You know, mm. or did find quite shocking. It came out ages ago. Mm. Um, but uh, as far as Alan was concerned, it was just his relationship to his his guru, uh, mm. and that I I worked on quite a bit with him. To, to he so well, he didn't end, want his guru to be misrepresented in no, some exactly. way, right? Okay. Yeah, in fact, okay. he just wanted him to be all light and you right. Know, Sunbeams, yeah. which is weird because Trunk, I know his girl Trunkle was a Trunk, was a Trunk, Trunkle was a, yes. was a absolute sexual predator, massive yeah. cocaine habit, and mm. Uh, mm. yeah, all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. and um, he wasn't even from Tibet, of course. He came from uh, <laughs> right, from Kamdo, um, right. which is in China and always right. has been. Right. Uh, although it's culturally, it's Tibetan mm. Buddhism. It's actually in China, right. and his autobiography, of course, is, is called Born in Tibet. So right. <laughs> from, from, from the first That's word, it's, it's a lie. <laughs> That's quite oh funny. boy! You were able to get sort of you know get the the truth of Ginsburg into the between the pages of the book and yeah yeah yeah. yeah. We live in these sort of very sensitive, touchy times, don't we? Mm. Where you know a lot of those countercultural figures, their behaviour now would be they'd probably get them cancelled, wouldn't oh, they? Oh God! Know? I mean, also probably put him in jail. Actually, right. half of them. You know, yeah. Right. When you think of the way people like you know Kerouac and Burroughs behaved, you know, mm. it's underage prostitutes mm. in Mexico City and everything. Mm. You know, well Kerouac particularly with the girls. Mm. Burroughs liked um, he, he just wanted to have a boyfriend you know he, mm. he was usually around 16, 17, 18 mm. and uh, he was monogamous basically right. I mean just, that was just a function like drinking mm. you know you mm. drink to get drunk you know you get a boy and you pay mm. him five pounds a day or whatever it is and that's they're there for years in some mm. cases yeah. um, whereas uh, yeah and uh, I mean Alan never did that actually he was never a sexual tourist but mm. he certainly came on pretty damn strong to mm. his students mm. he believed I don't know whether he believed it or he just said it that uh, you know the Greek tradition of sleeping with your students mm. and all that. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think a lot of what he <laughs> used to do w uh, would get him into a lot of trouble. And uh, he only ever once tried to come on to me as well. So that he just asked, and I said no. So that, right. was, that was the end of it. Really. Was, that the, was, that, was that on the farm or? or? Uh, no, it was at the Hotel Tossi when okay. I was living there. His problem sexually was that he only really liked straight men, mm. you know, and mm. that's hard. You know, because mm. straight men usually like women. Peter Olofsky, I think you said he was largely straight, wasn't he, really? Peter he, told me yeah. that, yeah, in order to have sex with Alan, he had to imagine Alan was a woman. And mm. that goes right back to the early 50s. Mm. I think Alan was, was never really happy, really. Right. I mean, he, he had some very, very good times. But when I was working on... Um, on the annotated edition of Howl. I think he really enjoyed coming over. He would call up and say, you know, anything we need, you know, for dinner and stuff. And, and he, it was, it was a, like a, a family, you know. Mm. Finally, he had some... He had a family, right? Yeah, somebody who wanted to hear right. what he'd been doing that day and right. hear all his gossip and stuff. And, right. you know, we'd be cooking and have a nice meal. And, yeah. you know, it was great. And right. then we would work through till about two or three in the morning because he, right. he was a very late night worker. Mm. Because uh, I suppose he never had uh, that. I mean, he he, he did no, have relationships with women, didn't he? But they were had, crazy. The ones who did have relationships, <laughs> they weren't going to be cooking for him. You can be sure of that. So he came on to you once, and it was just a fairly transactional. Do you fancy it, Miles? And you were mm. like, no. And he was like, mm. okay, fine. Let's mm -hmm. get on with some work. It was mm. just pretty much like that. Was it? Well, we were in bed together oh, um, okay. because uh, his apartment had been overrun by bed bugs, and it was mm. about two in the morning, and he mm. didn't know what else to do, and he didn't want to go to a hotel. Right. So he said, "Can I come over to the to to, to mm. Chelsea?" Um, I don't think it was a, a come on either, because he wrote lots of poems, as he usually does. Anything that happens to him, you know, bed bugs and stuff. There was, there was a, a bed genuine, bed uh, genuine bed bug yeah. infestation, yeah. Yeah. and the bed, okay. all his bedding had to be burned, yeah. and the mattress had to be thrown away, and everything. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it was a genuine. Right. So he turned that into a poem. <laughs> well, he he was good at doing that. I mean, mm. the time he got mugged, for instance, which was during the same period. Um, uh, some Puerto Rican kids dragged him into a, an empty basement just a few doors from where he lived and uh, so, and, and robbed him. And he kept chanting, you know, om, om. <laughs> and they said, if stop saying, you know, we'll kill you if you don't stop that, <laughs> you know, because it was so irritating. <laughs> and, it, and it could be as well. Right. And uh, so, he, yeah. so he lost $60. And right. then he wrote a poem um, right. about it and sold it to the New York Times and made, I don't know, 400 <laughs> or something. <laughs> so it was absolutely classic. Oh, great. Okay, good. <laughs> The countercultural enterprising. Yep. The time, no, yeah. he was good at that. Yeah. See, Alan worked originally in, in market research. Mm. You know, he was in the right. Empire State Building in right. an advertising company right. when he was just out of Columbia. You know, he had a background in marketing and promoting. And that was how he was able to promote people like Kerouac and Burroughs and everybody so mm. much, because he knew just how to ma manipulate the press. He'd been trained in it. You know. Poetry for him, obviously, was, you know, the centre of his creativity. And then, but also this rather 
other regarding duty that he had to his friends, often who were sort of disasters and mm. obviously and often quite horrible to more kind of needy or, or living off him. Mm. There's not that many people who are so, you know, generous to promote other people's work That's as true. well as their own. I mean, yeah, that, was, right. that was an unusual characteristic. Wasn't he it? was unusual like that. In fact, mm. that's something I should have made more of in the book, but I didn't. Mm. No, he, he really, really believed that these people were all geniuses. And mm. uh, and that, that was the first time in his life he'd met people like that, really, because his, his family was you know, really dysfunctional. His m- poor mother, she heard voices and, uh, you know, got completely manic and um, mm. finished up in mental hospital. Um, mm. Alan, sadly, had to uh, sign the thing giving her a lobotomy at one point, right, right. Uh, which he always regretted. Sure. But, uh, I forget why his father couldn't do it. Right. It was obviously a reason. And then, I mean, the poetry could change society, right? And the, and the more people read it or listened to it or heard it, that it would have a sort of transformatory effect in the yeah. culture. Right? And also, um, Alan was very aware that, that, as far as he was concerned, poetry was, was the premier art form. Uh, to him, that was the only, only thing speaking the truth in the McCarthy era, because we have to remember, you know, remember America was very, very right-wing at the time. And, of course, Howell, you know, is about the state of America, isn't it? And, you know, his, his, his work, you know, he was a sort mm. of voice speaking truth in the darkness, wasn't yeah. he, quite often? Or he and he even comes out there as gay in, in, in that poem. Right. And this is in 1955, he wrote it. Mm. 56, it was published. Mm. Um, that was incredibly brave. Of <laughs> and for you, when you read or heard Howell as a young man back in Gloucestershire, what was that like to hear it then? Oh, I mean, it was amazing. I, I, I read it in 19... 19- 59 I think mm. um, I was well I was obviously just a teenager I was about 16 <laughs> if you think back to that summer you know going into the fall on uh, Ginsburg's farm and uh, I guess it's it, is it a happy memory for you is it a vivid memory still oh, yeah well I was just together with Anne at that point mm. um, so yeah it was very nice you know being mm. with a new woman and mm. um Spending a lot of time talking to Alan. And just to wrap up, so you know what happened to them. So Anne's still alive. She's uh, Anne is a Tibetan Buddhist, Tibetan Buddhist. Uh, with, right. a, with, with a Tibetan name, living right. outside Boston. Right. Somewhere. And uh, Corso, he, he he's, he's, uh, he's in the um, in the cemetery in Rome. Right. Um, next to Shelley, very close to Shelley. Peter Orlovsky. Peter is I don't know where he's buried. He's dead too. Mm-hmm. Uh, some years ago, they they're all dead actually. All mm-hmm. the beats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ferlinghetti was the last one to go, and he only went some years ago. Um, Alan is dead. You knew Ginsburg as a friend. You've caught him as a biographer as well, and I've, you know you've and also you archived his works. You knew him sort of inside and out, as it were. Didn't mm. you? What was it like when he died then? Well, it was pretty pretty bad, really. Mm. I mean, I was in France in the south in the Pyrenees, uh, and um, he called up and said that uh, they they reckon he had about or three weeks to live because mm. um, it came really as a surprise this mm. uh, the diagnosis of liver cancer and mm. uh, in fact he went into a coma the very next day right. and uh, died the day after right so so he, he called up and he we, we talked for about right. an hour and a quarter or something. and it was a classic alan conversation i mean it was uh, on the one hand he was talking about his approach to death and when he heard that he was dying and it was you know absolutely certain as he said i i breathed a sigh of relief Said, hmm. Finally, you know, it's over. <laughs> yes, he meant that? yeah, he did. Uh, he said the same to a number of other people. To Boris, right. Bill told me that he did said the same to him on the phone. You know, so it's a response to his physical deterioration, not like I've had enough of life here. No, I don't think it was enough of life. I think mm. finally the, the mm. body was packing in, mm. and um, it wasn't even his lifestyle. Not that Alan really took very many drugs. Actually, he was never into that. He was too busy he was working his ass off all the time, as well as saying really profound moving things like that I mean he uh, he was still furnishing his new loft he just bought a loft and um, he said I managed to get the <laughs> the Salvation Army to combine the delivery charges on th- from three different branches so, <laughs> so, so I saved $28 <laughs> 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 don't worry about it it's too late for that it's oh too late God. I, I, I loved Alan he was mm. a wonderful guy I mean mm. uh, he he wanted to just have a, a Buddhist funeral in Boulder but um, I think some of his relatives got hold of him and, and he had a, a Jewish thing anyway, <laughs> <laughs> up by the airport. <laughs> um. 
You're still here, um, Miles. I mean, in the 70s, we didn't even get onto the second part of it. I'm with Patti Smith and the punk era. Mm. And uh, maybe we can get you back sometimes to talk about it. It would yeah. be a pleasure. Good. Thank you so much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture to talk about some of your adventures in the cow's culture. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you to Miles. He really is amazingly modest considering all he's done. We did a William Burroughs in London exhibition with him uh, a couple of years back, and he's great fun, as I'm sure you can tell from that conversation, such a sweetie. We've got to get him back to share some more of his amazing stories. I want to thank the British Library Sound Archive, and in particular Stephen Cleary, uh, the curator of theatrical recordings there, and to Peter Hale of the Ginsburg Estate for very kindly giving us permission to use them. And thanks to you, dear listener, Will you do me a favour? Come over to bureauoflostculture.com. Help support us in any way you can. You can join our mailing list, subscribe, tell your friends, leave a review, buy me a drink, write to us. We'd love to hear from countercultural friends. See you down the road. <laughs> <laughs>